2014, at dawn, Abby Brockway and Patrick Mazza, along with three compatriots, sat down in front of an oil train at the BNSF Delta Yard in Everett. These trains carry oil from the heartland through our towns and cities. Their numbers are increasing. It's been a big issue here in the Pacific Northwest. The five protesters stayed for eight hours until they were arrested and charged for trespassing. They were tried in Snohomish County Court, and I'll get to that. But first, a little bit about them. In some ways, they're both unlikely activists. Patrick's a little older than me. I figured he would recognize the bird's song, Hungry Planet, that started the show, but he may not have been listening to the birds then. I think it would be fair to call Patrick a climate policy nerd. He worked for years on smart energy grids. He's advised electric car companies. He helped found Climate Solutions, a nonprofit that seeks changes in state and federal policies. He's always believed in working through the system. Until now. This was his first civil disobedience since May Day 1971, which is a hell of a long break. Abby runs a painting and carpentry business. She's a deacon and an elder at Woodland Park Presbyterian Church, and this was her first civil disobedience. The activists built a tripod of steel pipes. Abby sat up on the top of it for the entire time. Extricating her, as well as the other protesters, was one of the obstacles that allowed the action to last so long. So what makes such people take action? We're going to do our best to find out here. Abby, Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Mike. Okay, I'll go with you, Abby. Okay. Why'd you choose to do this? Why go out on that dawn and block an oil train in Everett? You know, it was a building up moment for me. Like when you say an unlikely activist, that really resonates with me because I don't even think of myself really as an activist, but a passionate citizen that is really just fully trying to be just that. And, um, I'm at a time in my life where I have a teenage daughter. I run a small business. There's just a, I'm, I'm active in my church. There's a lot of things to do. Um, but this allowed me, this called me so deeply to actually take some time and really dig deep into this issue, this fossil fuel corridor that's been slowly developing, you know, since I think 2010, um, really started to ramp up in 2012. I, that was kind of the point for me. I, yeah. I, tell me tell me what about the issue got to you as you learned about the issue. So um, I started with the Sierra Club. They were organizing in their Power Pass coal campaign for the Cherry Point Terminal, which is a coal export terminal that was proposed. And that was my very first time. I didn't understand that you could show up to hearings and seeing thousands and thousands of people coming out to all of these hearings and participating as best we could as a community, I felt like we were winning when we were all together and and presenting really powerful comments, but realizing that these were really about rubber stamping the proposals in the end. So it felt like there was this song and dance of participate fully in the process, but 
know that we will um, adapt and mitigate these proposals and feeling overwhelmed at the volume of proposals that were um, being proposed in our region felt very difficult to keep up, almost like a full-time job if you really wanted to protect this um, this region from becoming this fossil fuel industry taking hold of the Northwest and actually during a lot of the hearings, displacing a lot of industries that are already existing that we have counted on for years and years. And then this boom and bust cycle of of this fossil fuel when right at the moment when we're trying to reduce our carbon emissions, we're being asked to um, increase our industry and be more entrenched in the oil industry rather than, than stepping back from it in, in ways. Patrick. There was uh, a particular thing that happened, Abby, in Magnolia that uh, that, tr- that triggered you to go the derailment. So, yeah, I would say um, that there were three things that happened. And just briefly, the Lac Megantic thing that happened in July, I mean, uh, uh, in 2013, I think it was. 2013, yeah. Yeah, 2013, was um, the small town in Quebec where the train, the brakes failed and it went down and actually just decimated this small town and 47 people, um, you know, vaporized. There were 20 orphans that were left because their parents were killed in this explosion. That just really, I think, woke people up to the dangers of these, not only the danger of the longer term climate problem that we have, but also just the imminent threat of these volatile trains moving through our communities, that I think that really opened our eyes to the beginning of a lot of explosions that we've seen all across North America. But then what happened a year later was I there was a driveway moment for me. I was listening to NPR. This was July of 2014. And I was I heard this story about Curtis Rueckert, who is an engineer who was inspecting some brakes. And BNSF fired him for a intentional work slowdown. And this was during the Olympics in 2010 when he was originally having this problem. But the, it, the story was reported in 2014. And um, this engineer had lost everything fighting BNSF because of this intentional work slowdown. The Olympics were happening. They needed to move the train, and they wanted to have him skip his brake inspection. And I just thought back to a year later thinking about that brake failure in Quebec and realizing that this guy is trying to do his job, and this company was bullying him and really saying, um, really trying to intimidate him and send a message to a lot of railroad workers, you know, you're be afraid. If you, if you go against the company in some way, be afraid. And I felt like the engineer was was our hero in the community standing up and willing to lose things personally to say, this is not okay. We need to inspect brakes and have safety checks. Well, two weeks later from that story that I heard this engineer having this problem, that's when the Magnolia derail happened. And that's a mile from my daughter's school. And that's when it felt so personal. And I felt kinship with this engineer. And I felt um, I felt ignored by by and being able to be protected from politicians who really did listen and said, gosh, I, I hear what you're saying, and this is really a dangerous thing, but I'm only limited in this jurisdiction. And on that rail yard during that day, we had petitions, and um, we were actually trying to use our First Amendment right to say, look, we are petitioning the government actively. We need to do it here because this rail, not only are um, the oil industry trespassing, 
But I believe the railroad is also trespassing against us in insisting on moving this volatile product in a really dangerous way. I think there's ways they could choose to um, be safer in this, but I think profit is driving them to cut corners. And I think a lot of communities don't realize how dangerous it is. And so my motivation is not just to make it safer, but to just expose the true cost of this product moving through our region, not only monetarily, but, you know, safety-wise. I think there's there's such a, a, a large amount of factors that make the cost um, sometimes hidden, sometimes really clear. Patrick, what moved you to action? You've been in the climate world for a long time. We've crossed yeah. paths a few times yeah, in that yeah. world. Like you said, I, I, you know, I had a long background. I, I helped uh, found Climate Solutions in 1998. I was actually writing about climate uh, for a number of years before I had worked in some urban sustainability work down in Portland where climate came in. And, you know, we were there even before Portland had its global warming plans. So, so I've, I've got this, this long-term background in it. Um, and as you said, you know, I kind of approached it for many years from a more nerdly angle, though I would have considered myself, I did consider myself an activist, but, but in the kind, you know, more, it was about assembling tables of people to build uh, consensus and and to build community knowledge and we did have some some successes at that you know there was there was a point at which you know in the last few years there were a quarter of a billion dollars of federal clean energy research money coming through this region a lot because of the consensus stakeholder work we've done so I'd seen progress but I saw what was happening with the science. I am kind of a nerd about that, you know. Well, you know, and I'm kind of a nerd about this stuff too. So I hope you didn't take any offense. No, no, I'm. I'm I, I love I, the I, I, wear, stuff. I wear it proudly, um, you know. And it, it, uh, you know, and you could see, you know, for me, there was a particular, a particular event that happened in 2007, where Arctic summer sea ice dramatically fell off. At, at rates not expected for 20 or 30 years. And that is just a whole disaster for the planet of blue water at the Arctic taking in heat that would otherwise be reflected, releasing all kinds of carbon sinks up there, truly disastrous. So I've been ready, I think, for a number of years, actually, to commit civil disobedience. But, you know, finally, uh, in 2014, you know, um, the opportunity came up you know, to, to do this. So I, I was ready to do it. I was ready to do it because I, I haven't seen the action in the political world that, that really should happen. I mean, it's, it's, it's all, I mean, you've got to, you've got to step back and look at our world and say at, at some level, it's, it's an insane world. We can't continue to go on the way we're going. We're clearly wrecking this world for our children. And, and, you know, my, my daughter's 18th birthday was the day after. Uh, and I kind of made this a birthday present to my daughter for her generation. So take me to that morning. Let me just, before we take you to the yeah. morning, I, I would just wanted to say that after, so mid-July when that derailment happened in Magnolia, um, a month later, there was an action camp, and um, it's on, it was an action camp on Vashon Island, and that's where I met Patrick, yeah. and that's when everything really culminated. So this was mid-August that we really had—that's where Liz Sporey was also. So the three of us 
um, kind of were ready and didn't really know what we were going to do. But I think we are both committed at Action Camp, wondering what the next step for us was, because we all felt that this needed to come to another level, that that the imminence of this, the the, um, the the reports that are coming out are really saying that every year we don't act and reduce carbon is 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 now not a linear problem. It's a very serious thing. So like we only have a few more years before it's not 16, 6% that the world's carbon needs to be reduced, but 15%. And that just doesn't seem doable. So if we act now, we could do this without disrupting as much as we would have to do if we kick the can down the road five more years, five more years, five year, more years. So I really do feel like the region has together started to bubble up and it seems that these things are happening more, it's more common. I think you are seeing it happen a lot more. You know, I mean, I think, and this is nationally as well, you know, at the national level, the, the choice to for folks to get arrested outside of the White House for the Keystone Pipeline. Yeah. You know, the actions against Shell Oil. You're seeing this increase in, in civil disobedience. You know, you're not the and only that's, people. I signed the, the Keystone um, pipeline pledge of resistance and helped to train people in Seattle for that. And I, I learned I how to train people. And I went through the process. And what I met was I everybody got to say why they were there. And there were so many grandparents that were there that were very afraid to be there. And this was very uncomfortable for them to break the law. But they had to do it for their grandchildren because they couldn't look them in the eye. And there were t- a lot of teachers there. There were a lot of medical um, people there, the the diversity of people that were there, and the reasons that were they were there for because they loved the place that they lived and they loved the people that they wanted to protect, and so that was so moving for me. It was so connecting, and I was ready. That's where I decided I was ready to um, risk arrest, um, and that I was not needed for that. But I did feel trained and prepared, and and ready to say, I'm I'm ready for the next. So it sounds like you guys had a moment where you just said, okay, we're going to do something. Yeah. I Yeah, you know, it just we need to do something really big in this world, Mike. I mean, we really we really need need to declare a war on climate change. And and nobody's talking about it as well, that that's not completely fair, but it's still on the margins of discussion of just how big a mobilization we need. The climate movement came back from Paris all waving the flag over that we'd gotten a 1.5 degree Celsius benchmark written in to, you know, and that as, as the absolute limit where beyond which is disaster. But, but if you look at the implications of what that means, it means we need to be in the developing nations, pardon me, in the developed nations, we need to be largely carbon free by 2025 or 2030 that's going to take a mobilization on a world war ii scale and and so you know i felt like going out on the tracks was one way of putting out that message of just how big we need to act you know most people don't do this right yeah and that's that's the thing so clearly you were doing this to have people pay attention to it, but also most people don't know what it it feels like to yeah. do what you did, <laughs> right? And just that that yeah. experience. And I'd love if you guys 
could share that a little bit just from, you know, the day itself, like how you were feeling and how the day unfolded when you chose to do that. You know, the amazing thing is the hour before I felt so calm and I thought I would be really nervous and scared, but I felt so such a deep peace. And, you know, I obviously was in prayer and and um, really trying to center myself in a in a good way. But I really felt like I was in the right place at the right time. I've never really experienced something like that. It was a really, um, I almost, when I was checking in with myself, thought, wow, that's weird that I'm not feeling so panicked. Like, I should actually have a little more adrenaline than I have. But yeah. I did feel, I felt really okay. And I trusted, I mean, I felt like we really um, worked hard to um, be safe and um Yes, there's risks involved in taking action like this, but that we were doing this to tell the truth and to send a message to those that we'd tried that that this is this is not can't go on the way that it's been going on. I do feel so proud to be with the the five each bringing such a different piece to the group and you know, I'm so proud to have met Patrick that day day at the action camp and and already knowing his his work that he had done and the solutions that he's offering up and providing to different industries. And, and um, I want to have more of the yes. I want to be having more of the solution. But I felt like I was on the defense and constantly saying no to this project and no to that. <laughs> and I really was craving to get over that part so that we could all move to the energies to the yes instead of all these people having to show up and say, no, this is what we don't want. Well, let's all free ourselves from that so we can start to say the yeses and the creative, you know, the vision that we do want to move toward. How did you feel that day, Patrick? Well, I barely got any sleep the night before. So it was, so I was, I was kind of adrenalated through the night, but uh, yeah, we had prepared, you know, you don't, you don't erect a tripod well, tell people what most people don't know what you did. Tell me what you okay, did that day. Okay, so so here here you have three steel poles that are tied together at the top, kind of teepee style. You know, it's kind of a, a knotted thing. So we we you know we we hauled the the tripod out there, erected the tripod. It's a little bit kind of Iwo Jima, kind of Mount Suribachi. <laughs> I was the anchor. I I did the tug of war where I had yeah. to pull it up. Yeah. Got it. And then, uh, and then we quickly uh, locked in. Abby climbed to the top. And when she, you say locked in, we we were sitting on on beach chairs, and we had a very ex- expertly crafted uh, uh, bondage devices <laughs> to uh, to hold us, which were constructed of wire rope and 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 mesh. Because chain is easy to break. These these are you know you if you ran a saw through this, it would break the saw. So this was kind of expertly thought out. We we locked down. Um, it was a nice morning, you know. I was you climbed to the top. Abby. Yeah, I did, yeah. and I hadn't climbed before, so I learned to climb at that action. How camp. high up were you? Eighteen feet. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. This. I mean, I was I was nervous for Abby. I mean, if we if we had, you know, if we had, you know, if, if anything had happened, I mean, she if you had failed to build it right. Yeah. 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 So you're sitting there. Did you have to sneak in or sneak by anybody? Well, no, no. It was the rail yard was open, so we were just we just drove in, you know, very early in the morning, and and were dropped off, and and, and then you set up, set up. So and, you're sitting your in there in your beach chairs, and what happened next? Well, you know, they they they're quickly the rail the railroad people were aware we were there and kind of came out and checked us out, 
And then a little bit later, the uh, Everett PD arrived, and people were kind of milling around. And then the, the Burlington Northern cops arrived. And BNSF, by the way, is the only corporation in in the country that can uh, have its own uh, officially officially designated law enforcement people. So their cops actually have local Their cops and, are cops. and federal authority. Yeah, they're a, a government unto themselves. Wow. Um, so anyway, we're, you know, we're, so, you know, no, nothing really happened for, for the first few hours, you know, they, they wanted to know what, you know, what, what our intentions were, you know, at a certain point they asked us, are we ready to go? And they, we said we intended to stay there at least till the end of the work day. We had cell phones so we could talk to the media, which yeah. were on a bridge that was far away because they c- couldn't trespass. Right. Um, so the media w- could come and um, we could see them on the bridge. And then we had uh, cell phones that we could do interviews. Yeah. And- we actually offered, uh, you know, if, if we would have unlocked and, you know, let them do what they wanted to us, if they would have let the media down. But they, they said no. So... Um, so then we saw the Bothell cops there, and they and what were what were the Bothell cops doing in Everett? Well, they're the cut crew for Snohomish County, so they pulled up with a whole van full of uh, saws and and bolt cutters, and they you know they 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 looked at and they they said we can't do this safely. So then they called the Everett Fire Department, and the fire department position and looked at and they said yeah we can do this, but. They didn't want to. Why not? Because the Washington State firefighters have taken a position against oil trains. They they don't like oil trains, and they were actually flipping our people, you know, just high-five signs secretly. So we had some sympathizers among the firefighters. You know, there's the community right to know, mm-hmm. and uh, the railroad is exempt from that. So they don't have to say what product they're moving. The, the fire department has no idea where, what, the, what the product that's being moved, when it's happening. Um, they're really limited to what kind of tools they have to be prepared for this kind of thing. They're in the dark. And I think a lot of us, are. that's part of what we're fighting for is um, we want them to know what those are. You know why? Yeah. Why does this company have have can have special police? They can be waived community right to know. They have special access to the you know transportation secretary. They they have complete access to all of our elected officials. I cannot. I can't go to the elected officials than when I want to all the time. I mean that would be difficult. But they're so powerful. They're more powerful than the president of the United States. These railroad companies. So, so what happened? Finally, if if you know, Bothell finally, wouldn't cut you out and Everett Bothell, didn't want to do well, it, they, they, they were there, and then and then you know word came in that there was a, a potential thunder and lightning storm. So firefighters go, well, here's five people on three eighteen foot steel poles sticking up in the air with lightning coming in. It looks like a safety issue. So they cut us out with the they cut the the four of us at the at the base of the poles with jaws of life. Thirty seconds. Uh, and then they bucketed Abby out, and we were taken to uh, Snohomish County Jail, and we were there for 24 hours before release. But before they arrested me, I had asked. There was negotiations throughout the day of how we could come down, why, when we would unlock, and I did say, if you sign my petition, I, I will come down. And you got to uh, tell what the petition was about. So the petition was a. It was a a petition to tell 
Governor Inslee to have an oil train moratorium. In, until this is deemed safe, let's just stop these proposals. We wanted to have no more pro- proposals of fossil fuel infrastructure approved. And we also wanted to have these trains not be moving through our community until we could figure out what kind of tank car you know, is, is safe and what the insurance that they have is. They're not saying how much insurance they have to move this. So if there were an accident, um, our, our city would, could go bankrupt just like that town of Quebec did. So, um, and would they sign the petition? No. Well, so they said that they couldn't because they were in uniform. And so I said, well, this petition's online. So I'm asking you, when you take your uniform off tonight and you tuck your children in, after you're done doing that, I'd like you to go online and sign these, this petition. And I also asked each of the firefighters before um, they arrested me, I, I handed them the petition and asked them to sign it as well. And they said they had the same policy. I would say most of those people in the yard were very sympathetic to us. And even in the courtroom, their testimony was very favorable to us. Well, let's turn to the trial because, yeah. cause, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm assuming that you understood you were going to be arrested. You yeah. understood there was going to be prosecution and mm-hmm. you were prepared to accept the Well, let con- me say one thing. As a yes. mother doing this action on a railroad, um, we visited an attorney ahead of time to ask hypothetically what our charges might be. We didn't say what we were going to exactly do, but we did ask some questions to find out what we were going to face. Didn't know if it was going to be federal charges. We didn't know if it was going to be lesser. So these were misdemeanor charges that we ended up getting, which was blocking. But it could have been much more serious. But it could have been. I mean, we did not, there was a lot of unknowns. You know, the things we didn't know if we were going to have were conspiracy. You know, a lot of times they'll throw many different charges in in that conversation with the lawyers, what was the what were the charges that gave you the most serious pause? How serious well, might it have been? Conspiracy was probably the most serious. And what would have been the consequence for that? Uh, that's a felony. I mean, it's it's so I, I don't, a year I don't plus remember, in jail is I a felony. I don't remember what the actual penalties were, and of course, federal. I mean, yeah. you know, they they quickly reported this to Department of Homeland Security, and there were reportedly a couple of federal agents out at our site. Yeah. So this is the age of of the terrorist scare so you know so what you know who knows yeah who knew what you might face but yeah. what you ended up facing was a and what i was Two working to get at you ended up facing misdemeanor charges for... second degree trespass mm-hmm. and then um delay slash blocking a train yeah now and this is the topic i want to turn to next is at the trial itself because yeah. i think this is interesting I mean, you, you, of course, couldn't deny that you were uh, trespassing and blocking the train. Mm-hmm. And instead, you chose to uh, ask the court to consider something called the necessity defense. Yeah. You want to take me through that, Patrick? What's, we, what's the necessity we defense? We had intended to conduct a necessity defense from the beginning. And it was a long shot because necessity defense uh, is rarely allowed in civil disobedience cases. Necessity defense states that Though we were breaking the law, the harm we intended to to avert was greater than any harm in the law broken. You know, so this was only the only climate or fossil fuel related necessity defense, civil disobedience necessity defense was in Great Britain in 2008. The, the only one argued previously, and they were acquitted. In, in 2014, there was a necessity defense that was going to be allowed in a Massachusetts court for a couple of guys who blocked a coal ship with a lobster boat 
but the the DA came in the first day of trial and said, I'm dropping the charges. These guys are right, and went and marched with them the next week in the People's Climate March in New York. So ours was the first necessity defense in a civil disobedience climate or fossil fuel case argued in the United States. What was the necessity? The necessity, we had two necessities. First, urgent action on climate. We, we urgently need to move on climate. The political system is tied up. We need to, we need to bust things loose. Second is oil train danger. Just the, these trains are explosive. Um, generally, the, the fossil trains are, are injuries to public health. The coal, the, the, the coal trains emit dust. Oil trains are more serious because they blow up. Uh, so those were our two, ne- two necessities that we did not feel that the normal paths through, through legal means was providing the recourse. So now I, there we I'm, go. I might point out that uh, Patrick is not a lawyer, but he represented himself pro se yes, in the I courtroom. Did. Yes, I did. Yes, we were joking about that earlier. That he, yeah. you know, he's not a, you know, he. And I told him, look, I played at being a lawyer for years. I'm sure I'm sure Patrick could pull it off. Well, put, put, put me in a nice suit and trim my hair a little bit, and I can pass for attorney. You know, and, I think you can. And the I attorneys were the attorneys were complimenting me. We we had real attorneys, so I wouldn't have done this if we didn't have a team of four other real attorneys who were great, great folks. I mean, they put in, you know, pro, pro bono, they put incredible amounts of time into this. So- and this is fascinating. So you, you asked the judge to allow a necessity defense, yeah. and what happened? He originally denied it, and then we went in, filed a motion for reconsideration. He reversed himself, which is very rare. Uh, one of the attorneys in a post call who hadn't been there said that might be the, 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 the last motion to reconsider you win in your life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, we persuaded him well enough that the case law in which he based his decision had some loopholes. And that, you know, and that there were some reasons. So what he allowed was us to introduce the evidence, but not necessarily to have the jury instruction for the jury to be able to consider. So the basically evidence. said, I'll let you put on your witnesses. And yeah. who were the witnesses that you had to help prove up the necessity defense? So Eric DePlace from Sightline was there. Um, there was a whistleblower um, named Mike Elliott that testified about the railroad and the dangers. Dr. Frank James, uh, Whatcom Doc, that testified to health effects, and who else am I forgetting? Uh, Dr. Richard Gammon. Yeah, Dr. U- Richard Gammon, the client. University climate. of Washington climatologist. Yes. So your basic argument was nothing's moving fast enough, so we have to do things like this. We need to shock the system. You know, we need to we need to create dissonance and friction. We need to say this is not business as usual anymore. You know, that, that's, that's what's got it. We're not living in a business as usual world anymore. And so, yes, you know, we're out of time. We need to, we need to take extraordinary action. So now that at the end of the trial, as I understand it, the judge having heard the evidence, Mm -hmm. the jury having heard the evidence, the judge then told the jury, you can't consider that evidence in deciding whether or not they violated the law. The judge said we had we had established three or four elements of the necessity. One that we believed there was a greater harm that in fact there was, and and our action addressed it. And that we didn't contribute to the problem. That we didn't contribute to the problem, but the four, we we proved all that. But the fourth element, we had no reasonable, no other reasonable legal uh, recourse. You, so, in other words, you should have 
called your congressman. Kept working within the system. Yeah. Right. So that this is the argument that necessity always, always comes up against. You know, there's always something else you can do, right? You know, even if it's been ineffective, right. you know, 20 times in the past, you know. So this, yes, and this is, this is where we need to to put it over. I mean, Tim DeChristopher, who's who's also, you know, who is a a veteran, you know, and a promoter of of this kind of action, was in the courtroom, and he he his his inspiration, or you know, he he his thought: what makes civil disobedience really different, unusual? Then what what takes it out of any other tool we use? And he said it's the vulnerability that you know that people. People are placing themselves in a vulnerable condition. You know, they're they're risking. And, you know, we had the contrast, you know, while our trial was going on, the Malheur was being occupied, the Malheur Wildlife right. Refuge, by guys with guns, okay? Right. We didn't have guns. We just had our bodies. And so we need extraordinary action to move the conscience of a community, to get people out of their normal, everyday distractions and go, hmm, this is unusual. What's going on here? We need to grasp the public mind and 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 make people understand we're not, you know, we're not in ordinary times anymore. We need extraordinary action now. So the judge, so the jury had to go out mm-hmm. and they came back with a verdict, but they couldn't consider the necessity defense because yeah. that's what the judge told them. What did the jury tell tell you all? What was the verdict? Well, the verdict was, um, you know, we, we were found guilty of criminal trespass in the second degree, not guilty of obstructing or delaying a train, because ironically, the uh, train we intended to obstruct, the oil train, they, the railroad said, oh, that's not leaving till later at night, whereas the five trains they said we did obstruct were all at their own discretion, uh, supposedly for safety concerns in the yard. So the, the, the jury was trying to, was giving us any leeway they could. You know, we found out when they, they came out, we, we were out in the hall and several, several of them came out and we had a, a, a time in the hall and it's actually up on YouTube, uh-huh. uh, Delta five jurors. I think you can, you, if you Delta five trial jurors, if you want to go, go, go Google. Google it. Yeah. Um, so, and they said, you know, we, you know, we would have basically let you off, you know, we were with you. From the beginning, we would have let you off if we'd been able to consider necessity, but, you know, but they weren't. So, you know, here we are. So now we filed appeals. So we're going to keep this going. So next level on necessity. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say more about necessity is that vulnerability is really powerful. You have to, you admit to everything. So, you know, all the jurors heard that we were there and they did not know that we were trying to fight necessity because you can't really mention, oh, here's our strategy. We're trying to do these four prongs. So when at the end, after they heard all of this testimony and they got their instructions, they the, I, the look on their faces was priceless. They were completely confused why they could hear all this compelling testimony. The courtroom was absolutely packed. People were it was an amazing story that was told by all of these experts in our community. And the chance that they did not get to say they are the juries that represent the community to decide if if these risks are tolerable or not. And they knew that they weren't tolerable. They understood that we felt we had to do this, but they were not allowed to use any of that stuff that they heard. So they were haunted. They're, they were in tears in the hallway. And I am convinced 
that we are going to make really strong legal precedents that absolutely there is no reasonable thing we could do. There's not one more protest, not one more march, not one more thing. Our, the Olympia, when I went to legislate in Olympia last, you know, it's right now they're in session. It is as gridlocked and as broken as as D.C. is right now. And um, there are a lot of climate deniers that are in very powerful positions. Um, Doug Erickson is, you know, funded by the oil industry, and he is chairman of the Energy um, and Environmental Committee. And if he wants to block something, he will. And he's very, you you know, it's, it's very frustrating to think that what else could I do to make change? Because I will do it. If the prosecutor had an idea, if the judge has an idea of the thing that the five of us plus all of the people that were in that courtroom that represent the groups that we work with could think of something, we would do it. But there is nothing. There is really our our, our elective... You can see it in the national politics right now how how gridlocked we are and how... Um, everybody is so deeply entrenched that we're not looking at the common good and what's good for the long term. We're all looking at short term and 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 not looking at the what the future generations are requiring. Would you do it again, Patrick? Well, uh, we we're, we have two years probation on uh, January sixteenth, twenty eighteen. I'm a free man, <laughs> um, so I you know I've I've you know I've pretty much uh, committed to support this kind of action. Abby, would you do it again? You know, that's a really loaded question because um, I absolutely feel called to do this work. Um, And to do it again is dangerous because then you become this hero person. And that's not what this is about. This movement requires many so um, I think moving back and supporting others that want to do this is the most powerful thing that I can do. And if I do anything else, it might be more for ego or some other thing. So really, the movement needs others to step up and be inspired by the five of us and the others that have done this before us. We were inspired by Tim DeChristopher and the Lobster um, Boat Blockade, Ken Ward and Jay O'Hara. And and we each need to be inspired by these actions that are ha- happening and um, to be moved by whatever that is that you're moved to do, and to um, to catapult this into a larger movement, and and that's happening. You know, we're we're not even though we are on probation for two years. I think that's really healthy. I would not want to disrespect Judge Howard and the courts, um, and make a mockery of what they're trying to do. I know the concerns of 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 what the boundaries are, but we want to bust those open in a very legal way. And I think we can do that. I think we are setting precedents for future people to use this because really I feel like the judicial system is um, the last best hope for us. I, um, you know, some of the evidence that was put in the courtroom was in a letter from President Obama that I had written and he wrote back his climate policy. And I felt like I tried the best to address the executive branch and then the Congress, when you look at the legislative branch and how that is absolutely broken. And on our website, we have timelines that prove how manipulative and broken this was and how long ago um, scientists knew this problem was happening and how um, the legislative branches have blocked this, especially under the Bush administration, 
that there were chances for us to make really small tweaks to make this to avoid this right. cat- catastrophe. So really, I don't see any alternative but to move forward with civil disobedience in a very loving and powerful, peaceful way. And that is how we're going to make change is when people say we're not going to participate in this anymore. So if you were talking to somebody else who was contemplating taking direct Mm -hmm. action like you did, what would you say to that individual? Well, I'd, I'd counsel them to work with people who know what they're doing. You know, there's, there's, you know, get with the network. The Rising Tide Network is good people to work with. Um, and, you know, be, you know, do a nonviolence training. They, there are nonviolence trainings that happen, um, nonviolent direct action trainings that happen quite quite often. So I, I'd say do that. Uh, just talk to talk to some of the people in the community. Seek them out, you know. Yeah, 350 Seattle, um, I mean, 350.org is, is doing a mass action this spring. And um, all, places all over the country are, you know, it was a call last time to go to New York and march um, for the People's Climate March. And now the call is to do some direct action. And um, so people can visit um, 350.org and find local places where they can get trainings and learn more about it. I think I started off when I went to actions I was in supportive roles, and I got to watch and see what happens during an action and meet and trust people. You have to build relationships. They have to trust you. You have to trust them. You know, you, you have to learn how to do this. And, and supportive roles are where you're actually seeing what's happening. And there's a lot of a lot of work that goes on. For the Delta Five, you know, there must have been 20 or 30 people behind us that were working to support us. So there's a lot of support roles that are available. Well, I want to thank both of you for coming on. This has been a fascinating discussion, and this is where the climate movement is going next, is, as you pointed out, with 350 nationally calling for a national day of resistance. This is going to be fascinating as we move into the future to see what, what happens next. That that day, that will be in May, by the way. It's called the Break Free event. You know, visit the 350 Seattle because there's website. a new Seattle Pledge of Resistance um, that you can sign up, just like there was yeah. the the national um, Pledge of Resistance. The, what would that? What, it would be the We Are the Red Line. We are the Red Line dot org. So that would be where to go. So that kind of answers the question um, as to whether they think it's worth it, because they are now recruiting new activists and organizers. They're taking their opportunity here. Yeah. So I started the episode with the song I liked. And Abby has picked our closing song. It's Yell Fire by Michael Fronte. Abby, why'd you pick that song and what's it mean to you? I got to hear Michael Fronte in uh, Redmond last, uh, last summer. And um, that it's such, he, he sings such truth to me about justice. And, um, and this song really talks about the injustices. And once you hear the energy of this song and you hear him string along all of these injustices together it just gets my blood flowing and I want to act and not just complain about stuff but actually be an active citizen of the world where you're fighting for what you love a revolution just arrived like the morning bring the alarm we come to wake up the snoring they're telling you to never worry about the future they're telling you to never worry about the torture they're telling you that you will never see the horror spend it all today and we will build you tomorrow three peace suits and bank accounts 
in Bahamas. Wall Street crime will never send you to the slammer. Tell all the children in the arms of the mamas. The F-15 is a homicide bomber. TV commercial for a pop-up pill called Chuck. Drug companies suck.